So let's take our Bibles, open it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Chapter 15, and today we're going to study and look together at the crucifixion of Jesus. The very pinnacle of not just the Gospel, but of history, our lives, everything. Everything hinges on this moment of history. So let's read together again God's Word, Mark 15 from verse 20. And when they had mocked him... They stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. And come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. It's a reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, I am completely dependent on you, on you to preach your word right now. Father, please be merciful to me. Lord, the glories of this text is too great for my tongue to confess. It's too great to proclaim. It's too great for our hearts to even comprehend. It's too great for our finite minds to understand the infinite love of Jesus, the infinite love of God that would that would send His only Son to die for us like this, to take our sins upon Himself. Father, please, please help us to understand this. I pray that You will give us Your Holy Spirit, that we may know how much You love us. Help us, Lord. We are so doubtful. We are so easy to forget. And we are so accustomed to the story that it almost leaves us The same after we've read it and after we've studied it. But, oh Lord, please, let it not be so tonight. 
Let us walk out with a renewed sense of your love and joy in the Holy Spirit and love you more and obey you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Lord, we have really now come to the very center of the Bible, right? It's the center of um, really all of human history. Here we see the infinite love of Jesus. Remember Paul, that's what Paul said and that's what he felt when he wrote in Galatians 2.20. He says that Jesus loved me and gave himself for me. We see here the infinite love of God the Father, for God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. We see here the infinite love of the Holy Spirit, as Hebrews 9.13 says, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you want a summary of the entire Bible, look no further than here, than the cross. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the King of Kings, and He dies as our substitute in our place under the judgment of God. So, beloved, as we approach this text, I really, like I've prayed, I hope that the familiarity of it won't cause you to leave the same but that you would again be overwhelmed by the, the love of God, a sense of awe, and that, would, that you would willingly bow to this king, willingly give your life to him, willingly follow him who loved you first. So our text will divide into four acts. We're going to look, divide our text into four parts. Um, the king crucified, the king cast off, the king condemned, and the king confessed. And we're going to walk through them one by one. So first, the first act of the story is the historical details of the king crucified. The king crucified. Look at verse 20 to 21. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. So it was the custom of the Romans to let the criminals carry their own crosses to make a statement. This is what will happen if you oppose Caesar, if you oppose Rome. This is what, what will happen to you, right? So it was a public message. But you might ask, why didn't they force Simon to carry the cross for Jesus? Well, remember the, the events of Jesus before the cross. He had a sleepless night. He was already beaten by the Jews and the religious leaders. And, they, and he was scourged by the Romans. So Jesus, understandably, was too weak to finish the walk to Golgotha. But notice something interesting in the way Mark introduces Simon. Very specific, verse 21. He says, Simon, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. You might wonder, why does he give so much specific detail about who this man was? Now, one, one, one reason could be he just wanted to show us that this is an historical man. But I think there's another reason. Um, this shows us, I think Mark expected the readers of his gospel to know who Rufus was and to know this man, Simon. It's like me, it's almost like me saying, and this man did this, and by the way, he's the father of Karnu. And I was like, oh, okay, we, we, we're starting to connect the dots. Because Rufus is mentioned in another place in the Bible. And we found out that Rufus was a Christian. 
um, Romans 16, verse 13, it says, Greet Rufus. Paul is saying, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. You see, so the whole family has come to Christ. So I think most probably this Rufus spoken in Romans is the same Rufus here. So we see in this event that Simon came to Christ. Simon followed the Lord, led to his conversion, and that led to the conversion of his whole family. That seems also like a pattern in Acts. The father gets saved and then the whole family gets saved. It's normally like a pattern there. Beautiful. But isn't that amazing? Even while Jesus is walking, he's busy saving people. He's busy drawing people to himself. Look at verse 22. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. So there could be um, an echo of the garden. Remember, the promise in the garden was that there will be a seed that will crush the head of the serpent. And here Jesus dies on the place of the skull, crushing the head of Satan. Could be an illusion there. But also an important thing to remember is that Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. Golgotha was outside of Jerusalem. It's a picture of being outside of God's favor, outside of God's kingdom, outside of God's people, cut off from his covenant, cut off from his love, cut off from his blessing. And this was exactly what Jesus was doing for us. He was going, dying outside under the curse of God. Remember, the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament were to be burned outside the camp. In the same way, Jesus died outside, rejected by both God and men. Hebrews 13, verse 11, makes the connection clear. Listen to Hebrews 13, 11. It says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This was part of Jesus being a curse for us, to die alone, to die outside. Verse 23, it says, And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, there's some debate over why the Romans would give this for um, the the victims of a crucifixion, either as an act of compassion or to make their jobs easier to crucify him. Because this was a kind of a primitive painkiller. This was like a primitive numbing of your senses so that so you're a bit more um, easier to droopy and maybe even a bit unconscious, unconscious to be crucified. Because you can imagine how difficult it is to crucify um, someone who doesn't want to be crucified. But what did Jesus do? Look at verse 23 again. He says, but he did not take it. He did not take it. He will not take the easy way. He will not lose any of his faculties to accomplish the will of God. He will be in full control of his mind, except the full suffering of what is going, coming to him. He's accepting it all. And then we simply read a very short phrase in verse 24 at the beginning. And they crucified him. The Bible almost just gives it as a matter of fact. And again, like we saw last week, the the gospel writers are not focusing on the, the violence of this, the gruesome way that Jesus died, but more on the shame, more on the, 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 the leaving of God, the wrath of God, which is the most important part of the cross. But it's, I think it is helpful for us to understand a little bit of the horrific nature of a crucifixion. To get a glimpse of, if Paul would say, I only boast in the cross, how insane that sounded to somebody that's not a Christian. How, what an offense the cross really was. 
So putting the na- this was crucifixion was torture perfected. Putting nails through your hands and your feet didn't cause too much bleeding that you would just quickly bleed out. It didn't damage any vital organs. So some victims could hang on the cross for three days. For three days. That's one reason why they broke the legs as well, to make their death quicker. People would die for various reasons on the cross as well. For exhaustion, heart failure or suffocation. Others were eaten alive by birds. That is the horrific if you think of cro- the cross, you would, you would be repulsed about that. Look at the rest of the verse. Look at verse 24. It says, And they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Third hour is 9 a.m. 9 a.m. Jesus was crucified. And the, the, sol- the, the soldiers were entitled to the little bit of possessions you have after you were crucified. So they could take all the victims' possessions when, when they were, were dying. And it's, it's actually a very sad picture. It's like, this man is good as dead. We can take his stuff. And that's what they were doing. But Jesus only had a garment. That's what he had. And that's what they took. But what they didn't know is that this was also fulfilling specific prophecy in the Old Testament. Psalm 23, or Psalm 22, sorry, it's 22. In fact, if you read the entire psalm, it's, it's, it's a depiction of the cross and what Jesus has went through. Listen to Psalm 22, verse 17 to 18. Um, David says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This was a specific um, prophecy that Jesus is fulfilling. Another thing we might not realize of the crucifixion is that Jesus was crucified naked. Because they took his clothes. He was hanging in complete shame before people. And that, too, is a picture of the gospel. He was stripped so that we could be clothed. Remember what God did with Adam right after they sinned? He clothed them with the skin of an animal. And in the same way, here God takes the Lamb of God, takes His righteousness and clothes us with His good works. And our sins are given to Him as the sacrifice. So we don't have to hide from God for our sins because He died in shame. So that actually frees us to confess our shame, to confess our sins, because the shame and the sinner we confess is already covered by Jesus. It's already covered by the blood of Jesus. Look at verse 26. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. So for those who were crucified, on the top of the crucifixion, normally they place the, the reason for their crucifixion. Their charges, their their guilty crimes, what they did on top. What is Jesus' crime? Nothing. He's just called the king of the Jews. No statement of what he did, what he did wrong. That is who he is. John's gospel tells us that, that it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So not only the Jews could read this, everyone could read this. So you could understand why the, the Jews might have been upset with this description, and, and I think it's in, it's in John's gospel, where they ask Pilate to change it to say, he said he's the king of the Jews. They didn't want just a blanket statement that he is the king of the Jews. But Pilate said, no, that's what I've written because I'm making a point. He knew that he was innocent. He knew that they were delivering over at, um, because of their envy. Look at verse 27. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right, and one on his left. We cannot be sure, but these two robbers were probably with Barabbas. 
in the insurrection, in the robbery, because robbery alone would not be sufficient reason to be crucified. So they were probably with Barabbas on their way to be crucified. Barabbas was on his way to be crucified. So if that's true, if these two robbers were with Barabbas, the picture here is amazing because who was supposed to hang in the middle? Barabbas, right? He was the one who was supposed to die there. And yet it's Jesus dying in his place. And again, this fulfills specific prophecy. Listen to Isaiah 53 verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Beloved, this is our king crucified. He died outside the city alone. He died naked. He died as a criminal, and he died in our place. This is how much he loved us. This is his love displayed for us. But the second act we see is that the king was also cast off. So he wasn't just crucified, he was also cast off by his own people. First, the crowds mock him. Look at verse 29. Those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So yet again, we're reminded of Psalm 22. Psalm 22 verse 7 says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. So their mocking reveals both their misunderstanding and an irony as well. Because what did Jesus refer to when he was speaking about the temple? He said, I'm going to destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking about his body. So their mocking is being fulfilled in front of their eyes. He's, the temple is being destroyed in front of them. And in three days, he will raise himself up from the dead. <laughs> but they completely misunderstood Jesus. They completely misunderstood his message and who he was, what he came to do. So the crowds and those who walked by mocked him and cast him off as their Messiah. The second group that cast Jesus off was also the chief priests. Look at them, verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Notice to whom they are talking to. They're not even talking to Jesus. They're talking to one another. They're mocking him to one another. Talking about him in the third person, he saved others. He cannot, he cannot even save himself. But again, what an irony of those words. Who are the ones who cannot save themselves? <laughs> who are the, the real ones who cannot do anything to save themselves? They are. You are. We are. Right? We are the ones who have no ability, no power, no good works that we could present or perform before God to be acceptable, to save ourselves. And Jesus, on the, on, on the other hand, did have the power to save himself. He has the power to save himself and deliver himself. Yet he willingly chose to die willingly chose to lay down his life, to be obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On top of that, Jesus is in the process. So he says he cannot save anyone, or he cannot save himself, but he's in the process. He's busy saving people by dying. At that very moment, even remember that beautiful prayer of Christ. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Even right there, he's thinking of others. He's loving others. 
not even thinking of himself at his worst and the most horrible way that he could be, he still loves. But they add another mock to their tongue. Look at verse 32. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Here they promise conversion if they see. Let us see and then we will believe. Yet, how much have they already seen? You see, this is, this is, this is not open-mindedness. This is not being open-minded to be persuaded by Christ and his claims because they've seen miracles. They've seen Jesus raise the dead. They've seen everything. And they say it's through Beelzebul that he drives out the demons. Hardened heart, refusing to believe. His pure life, sinless life. They couldn't accuse him of sin. They couldn't. <laughs> no one could accuse him. But they still wanted more evidence. You see, sometimes people do not want to believe, not because of intellectual reasons, but because of moral corruption, hardness of heart. Doesn't matter what you tell me, I will never believe. That actually sounds a lot like Judas. Oh, not Judas, Thomas, sorry, Thomas. <laughs> but then the Lord graciously showed him and he believed. But the cherry on the cake is not only the crowd casted him off, not only the chief priests cast him off, the religious leaders, but also even those who are crucifying or crucified with him are casting him off. Look at verse 32. At the end it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Also reviled him. Even those who were crucified with Jesus mocking him. So you really, we really have this picture of Jesus being utterly alone. Utterly alone. We know later one of the, one of the criminals repented and changed his mind and trusted in Christ. But Mark focuses on this utter loneliness of Jesus. That he was mocked by everyone. And so our king was not just crucified, but he's also cast off. And why? So that the opposite may happen to us. He was cast off so that we may be accepted. We were the prodigal sons. We were the ones on the outside eating the food of pigs. We were those people. We were Barabbas. We were them. And then here comes God. He wraps his arms around us and say, welcome home. Welcome home. In Christ, we are now called the beloved of God. Mind, mind blowing. If you know that meme, <laughs> but that's how I feel. So our king was crucified, our king was cast off, and thirdly, our king was also condemned. Condemned. Look at verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m., and now at 12 p.m., at, the, at, at noon, at the time when the sun would shine the brightest, there was a darkness over the whole land for three hours until 3 p.m. Some say this was a solar eclipse. Others say this was a sandstorm. But none of those um, descriptions fits here. This is a supernatural darkness brought about by God himself. But what does this mean? What significance does the darkness mean? Well, think about the ten plagues. I think this connects back to the ten plagues. Remember, the ninth plague was darkness just before the tenth plague, which was the slaughtering of the lamb. So you see the connection? 
the darkness came and the, the lamb was slaughtered. Darkness came and Jesus is slaughtered. He, God himself, takes the knife and he sacrifices his son. We read in Joel 2 verse 1, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on, on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So darkness just shows us the judgment, the God's anger, God's wrath being poured out on his son. And what makes the scene so striking is that this time it wasn't the high priests, the Sanhedrin, or, or Pilate who condemns Jesus, but God himself condemns Jesus. God himself condemns his own son for the sins that, of everyone who would ever believe in him. And that's why I read these chilling words in verse 34. It says, And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoted again, Psalm 22, verse 1, a direct quote. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is really the heart of the cross. This is really what we need to understand if we are to make sense of what happened here. God punished Jesus. God judged his son. He crushed him. He poured out his divine wrath on him for what our sins deserve. Isaiah 53, verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was God who placed our sin on Jesus and then treated him what our sins deserved. Imagine, imagine this moment. Jesus, for all of eternity, had perfect fellowship with God, perfect communion with him. When he would cry at, the, at his baptism, the heavens tore open and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Mount of Transfiguration, the, mount, the, the heavens tore open and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And now Jesus cries out and there's nothing. There's silence. For our sake, he, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God treated Jesus what our sins deserved, so that he can treat us what Jesus deserves. That's the gospel. God treated Jesus what our sins deserve, so that God can treat us what Jesus deserves. That's what substitutionary atonement means, that taking our place, he died in our place, and we are accepted because now we're clothed with that righteousness we could never earn. Now, just to clarify, Jesus didn't become a sinner or sinful on the cross. That's so important. He was still as holy, as innocent, as pure, as blameless as ever. But God treated Jesus. God placed our sin upon him as if he did it and treated him what our sins deserved. And that's what our king did, our king did for us. And yet again, the people misunderstand him. Look at verse 35. It says, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on the reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. So you can understand this misunderstanding, because Eli is very close to Elia, and so that would have sounded like the same name. So they thought he's calling Elijah. 
They gave him a sponge full of sour wine, which was the cheap wine the soldiers drank. Perhaps they wanted to revive him just for a little bit to see if Elijah will come and save him. But now our text closes with the amazing statement by the centurion. This is the climax of the entire gospel. We're going to see why. And now we see our king confessed. Our king confessed. Look at verse 37 to 38. So Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So Mark says two things happen immediately. Temple curtain torn from top to bottom, as if God himself takes it, by his, from it with his hand and just rips it open. No longer only the high priests who are allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies. Now anyone can come. Anyone who has faith in Christ can now enter into the very presence of God and have fellowship with God. The gate is open. Jew and Gentile, come. Anyone can come, have the same fellowship, the same joy, the same love of God which Jesus experienced from all of eternity. We can experience. Heaven's gates are swung open. And the, one of the first people to enter into this new opened way is the centurion in verse 39. When the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Matthew's gospel says there were earthquakes, there were resurrections, so there, there were many physical signs happening and surely all of them had an impact on the centurion. But Mark says that there's something specific that caused him to say this. Something specific for why he believed that Jesus is the son of God. Notice carefully the reason in verse 39. He says, When he stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he confessed. This is the Son of God. So by the way Jesus died, convinced him. Now think with me. This is a Roman centurion. He has, saw, he has seen many crucifixions, many deaths. What makes this death different? What convinced him by seeing the way Jesus died that he is the son of God? Well, think about how every other criminal would react to the whole process of crucifixion. Every single one of them fighting for their every last breath, fighting the gods not to be crucified, fighting even on the cross, angry and frustrated, trying to save themselves from every form of suffering and pain. But now here comes Jesus. And he climbs on the cross, willingly. They don't need to force him. They don't need to push him down. They don't have to. He, lay, he puts his hands on the side for them to put the nails in. He puts his feet down for them to put the nail in. And then he uttered a loud cry and he breathed his last. You see, the point there is, that's the key. Jesus didn't just die. He chose to die. He gave his life. He chose to breathe his last. Matthew 27 verse 50 makes it clear. It says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He yielded it. His life wasn't taken from him. 
he, he gave it. And it was all of this which caused the Roman centurion to say, truly this man was the Son of God. Notice again, the, the Pharisee said, we will, if we see, we will believe. And here, what did the Roman centurion do? He saw and he believed. He had eyes of faith to look at a dying man on the cross and be saved. That was the faith that they didn't have. They couldn't see the glory of God, the glory of the Savior on the cross. They couldn't see it. But this Roman centurion could see and he believed. And what makes this statement so significant is that this is the first human being in the Gospel of Mark to confess this, that he is the Son of God. And that was the whole reason why he wrote his gospel. Turn back to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The opening statement of Mark, right? It's been such a long time, I think. <laughs> we haven't looked at this verse for so long. But look at the very reason Mark wrote his gospel. Mark 1, 1. In the beginning was the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what do we see at the end of the gospel? The Son of God. The book begins the way it ends. That is Mark's message. This is what Mark wanted us to know. We've come full circle in the gospel. So throughout the gospel, God himself declared Jesus to be his son. Demons confessed Jesus to be his son. But the first human being in the gospel is the centurion. And what Mark wants us to see is this, especially where at the cross he confessed this. Where, sorry, where the, he he confessed this. He confessed it at the cross. So here's Mark's message. The entire gospel of, of Mark is this. You cannot understand who Jesus is unless you see him on the cross. All other pictures of Jesus will be a misunderstanding of him unless you come to the cross and see him there. There confess him to be the Son of God. The Son of God crucified that is who he is. That's the full picture. Remember Peter's can, Peter and, and the miracle of the healing was in two, the miracle of the blind men, where it was in two stages, because Peter says, you are the Messiah. Mark actually excludes Peter's confession that he is the Son of God to make a point. To say Peter and the disciples did not have the full picture until the cross. But at the cross, now everything is revealed. Now Jesus is revealed. This is who he is. The disciples thought he's going to be the conquering Messiah, is going to rule in, in Rome. But no, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the King of the Jews. And he is the one who is hanged on a tree for us. So what must our response be? What must you and I do to this? Well, accept this Jesus. This one. Not the Jesus of your imagination, the Jesus that will just make your life comfortable, and easy. The Jesus which the disciples thought will just take away all their suffering and all their pain on earth. And then Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you're not thinking the thoughts of God, but you're thinking the thoughts of men. No, this is the Jesus. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The suffering righteous man of Psalm 22. He's the suffering son of God and we must accept him and follow him on the same road of suffering. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Trust me.
It's suffering on earth, but glory forever. Glory is coming, okay? But not now. <laughs> now it is suffering. It is shame. We too will be mocked like Jesus was mocked. Imagine a perfect man. He did nothing wrong. He was mocked. How much more we who do have sins, who do have reasons to be mocked. So we should expect this. We should not be surprised when we are treated like Jesus with suffering and contempt. We should follow him. Are you willing? Have you counted the cost following this Messiah? Dying to yourself? Have you entered yet into the, the torn curtain? Have you come yet to him? Have you come yet to be saved by his grace? Have you entered the narrow gate where only few would find? Have you come yet? Have you stood facing Jesus like the centurion and said, this is the son of God? Listen to me, that's how you enter. By trusting him. Trusting don't, not by your good works, not by punishing yourself for your sins, not by trying harder. You can't. That's why he came. He came for people who couldn't do it. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know they, have, they are spiritually bankrupt. They have nothing in themselves to offer. They have nothing to give God except their sin. That's all we have. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. For they come to Jesus to be saved. Just look to him. Look to him right now. Like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, when he saw the cross, remember his burden on his back fell off and rolled into the tomb, the empty tomb. That's what will happen. If you just look to him, the burden of your sin will fall off. You will experience the forgiveness of your sins and have peace with God. See and believe. See and believe. For us who have already come, for us who are already in, for us who have already tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that Jesus is the Son of God, but the suffering Son of God who rose from the dead who will come again. For us, will you kill any doubt in you of His love for you? Will you kill it tonight? Any doubt that He loves you? Banish the thought that because your life is difficult that somehow God is, doesn't love you. Banish that thought from your, from your mind, from your heart. It doesn't belong there. Simple question we should really ask ourselves. Do you really believe that God loves you? Answer that. Do you really believe that God loves you? If not, look at the cross. See how much He loves you. See what he did. See what he went through to save you, to give you eternal life. If God loved you this much, if he was willing to crush his own son so that you might be saved, how will he not also give you everything? He already gave you the best. He already gave you his best. So why would he withhold anything good from you? Your trials, your sufferings is good for you. Because it comes to you by the hand of your Father who loves you. He works truly all things together for good. And all things means, even in the Greek, all things. He will not let one hair of your head fall without his permission. 
will not let one trial come to you without his permission. He will provide for all you need. He will not withhold anything good from you. Nothing good from you. He will cover all your sins. The sins you will do today, the sins you will do, because Christ has died. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Let's just use a few moments of silent prayer. Let's just pray, respond to God and to His Word. And let us humble ourselves before Him. Let us use this time now. Oh Lord, we stand in awe of your Son, of you, for what you have done. Lord, how the whole Bible from Old Testament to the New Testament has one message, and that is Jesus and Him crucified. All the attributes of God displayed on the cross. Lord, on the cross, we want to stand like the centurion, behold, see and believe that you are the Son of God, Lord Jesus, the one who died the one who became a curse for us, the one who became sin that we might become the righteousness of God, the one who died in our place like the lamb slaughtered on our behalf. Father, please forgive us for doubting that you love us. Please forgive us. Forgive us for measuring your love with with how good it's going with us. Forgive us for measuring your love by by a lack of trials or a lack of suffering. When your word shows us that you've called us to suffering, you've called us to pick up our cross and follow you in the same road of suffering. Lord, this life is hard. It is a life of suffering. But yet we are loved. We are not forsaken. For Jesus died for us. And he will come again and renew us and take us to be where he is. Father, help us to endure, help us not to lose hope, help us to rejoice in our salvation, and help us to give you all the glory that you have saved us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.